A very warm welcome to this World Game Changers podcast, where your host, Paul D. Lowe, embraces many crucial conversations that compassionately contribute towards creating a better life and world. Paul's intention is very simple, to help get people's inspirational insights and motivational messages out into the world so others may benefit. Hello listeners and welcome back to this World Game Changes podcast episode where I am absolutely delighted to uh, to welcome back as well Richard Gerver. Richard has been with us on more than one occasion previously. Um, I know his modesty will prevail and he won't introduce himself accordingly, but I will. Um, I think it's fair to say, Richard, well, I certainly class you as a world change expert and I value your opinions on a whole host of topics um, immeasurably. So anyway, a little, bit of a long-winded way of saying a very warm welcome, sir. Oh, it's it's an honour and a pleasure to be back, Paul. It's so good to to be with you. And I think it's really important, by the way, that our listeners uh, know that we're recording this the day after your birthday. And um, I can see you on Zoom. They may not be able to. And you don't look a day over. Oh, 21. Anyway, with that. <laughs> Checks in the post, Richard. Checks in the post. <laughs> so on that note of age very appropriate nice segue richard i think you've done this before haven't you you've got a feeling (laughs) you might want to consider going on stage and having a go at this um so this this topic i hated school but grateful for it now was the recycled teenager what does that conjure up initially with you richard Oh, my goodness me. It, so many things, Paul, because I mean, not not in as a dramatic a way as I know you had your education. You know, when I. When I look back to my education and then when people remind me, <laughs> you know, given my first career, which was as a teacher and a, as a head teacher, when I left school at 18, um, I never wanted to go back into a school ever again in my entire life, ever. Um, I felt like a misfit. I felt like I was completely out of the orbit of the kind of school I was in. Now, just to set a little bit of the context for people, I was very privileged, arguably. My parents and actually my grandparents sold their homes and sacrificed everything to send me to a private school because it was their dream to provide their child grandchild with the very best education they could you know it was like their number one priority and so they they sent me to so I was privately educated from the time I was three until I was 18 and that by the way added a considerable amount of pressure on me particularly as I became an older teenager because I knew what they'd sacrificed and how on earth do you turn around to your family who have sold their homes to pay for this to say actually i hate it or i hated it or i'm i'm it, it and the problem for me paul was i was immensely creative i was a writer an artist an actor i did all those things were the things i loved as a kid and i went to a school that was highly academic highly sports focused particularly rugby which was their sport it had um, a ccf you know a military cadet unit and all that kind of malarkey and it was all boy right so it, it was uh, it was tough and and the interesting thing is 
that a for all kinds of reasons we won't necessarily discuss now when i chose to become a teacher for very different reasons um actually for the love of a young woman and how many of us as young men can <laughs> can attest to that being a path changer in our lives um when i became a teacher a young teacher in my very early 20s that was when i started to process my own experience more objectively and rather than just taking my reflex judgment of I hated it in the moment, it made me a worse person for whatever reason, blah, blah, blah. I was able to start to understand and unpick the learning I'd taken from that without even knowing that I'd learned from that experience and reflected on, despite everything I felt at the time, A, how lucky I was to have been in that environment. Um, because for all kinds of reasons, and again, we may touch on this later, I think you realise and reflect on as you grow older, there's no such thing as a bad experience if you process it in the right way and learn from it, right? So all of those things together are a very long-winded response to your question. Um, and, and one of the remarkable reasons why, despite having hated education with a passion at 18, I ended up leading a school by the time I was 30. <laughs> yeah, life's ironies. It's amazing, isn't it, how we we create a belief system around something. I mean, what this rightly or wrongly takes me off as a tangent, Richard, and I've quoted this many times, but um, I was very fortunate to have benefited from the mentorship of one Jim Britt, an American that was Jim Rohn's business partner and Tony Robbins as coach and mentor for five years. So I think it's fair to say, you know, he was a wise old, uh, he was a wise old sage. Um, and um, he said something to me once and he said, you know, Paul, all beliefs are false. And that initial reaction of, well, you know, I believe I'm male, I believe I'm a certain age and, you know, da, 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 all the, the identity stuff. But what you were saying there, Richard, kind of reflects that because obviously at the age of 18, you had a belief around education. But that was a relative snapshot in that moment in time, wasn't it? And beliefs are transient. You know, I think it's a bit like a stream. We have a look at, a, you know, a flow of water, any one given moment in time. But in the next second, it's moved on. And I but think also, I think you're right. Sorry to interrupt. But also, I think the really interesting thing with beliefs are they can only ever be shaped by your lived experience, right? So as a young man, as a teenager, my beliefs about education were shaped by my exclusive experience of my education. And I think as we go through life, you know, one of the things I think we become more and more aware of, or we should become more and more aware of, um, I, think it's, I think it's really um, pertinent in the world, in the divided and angry world we live in right now, um, where people's beliefs are shaped by their own lived experience and by their own context. You know, the wiser among us realize that actually to grow, to evolve, to learn, to develop, to find peace with the world, your world and the world around you, you have to be open-minded enough to realize and respect that you're, you need to be active 
in shaping, challenging and developing your beliefs, because it's only by broadening your own horizons, your own context, your own experiences, can your beliefs become, you know, increasingly rounded. You know, for me, we talk a lot about the wisdom of elders. You know, I, one of my favorite quotes being um, every time an old person dies, a library burns down, you know, and, and in a way. I think there's something sadly poignantly true about that. Um, and I think that's what I'm, you know, it, it, for some of us, it comes too late. And for what what people like you and I, I think, passionately believe and try and do is get people to understand the limitation of their beliefs unless they broaden their horizons and they're able to recontextualize, challenge and recalibrate their thinking and their their views of the world. And I certainly think that happened to me as um, a child moving into adulthood with education. And, you know, I'd love to know a little bit more about your view on that based on your experience, given that really was the catalyst for this this podcast. Yeah. And thank you, Richard. Yeah. Um, the essence of that is, is this concept called the recycled teenager. Because I believe I've come to understand, you know, this thing about developing beliefs. I'm developing my beliefs all the time. Continuous improvement. One of the things when I started out, Richard, on my academic journey way back in, what, 91, year 91 from my foundation year, 92, first time at uni, was this, I, I got introduced to something called Kaizen, the Japanese continuous improvement philosophy. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that was massive for me absolutely massive and you know i think in terms of our beliefs that dovetails quite nicely into kaizen because whatever i was thinking or believed yesterday who's to say it's true today it might serve me today or what was exceptional yesterday yeah i really believe that do you know what richard the world is x or y or z and, and i so passionately believe it and then today i'm thinking ah, do you know what maybe richard was right and then maybe tomorrow we have a conversation where, do you know what, Richard? Actually, maybe perception is all there is. And I think we've got, so long as we've got that awareness to understand that perception is all there is and respecting those differences, there is no ego-driven argument to be had. I'm right, you're wrong, or vice versa. But isn't it true that we as humanity as a race, boy, do we get bogged down in that. No, I will be right. Yeah. Yeah, and the the energy we waste in constantly, um, you know, fighting against any other form of reality or context in order to protect our ego, because of course, then it's then it's an entirely attached to to ego. You know, I see so often as you do so many conflicts, from the smallest conflicts to the the most horrific conflicts, where people become increasingly deaf to other opinions, other values, other lived experiences, and almost deliberately do so just to protect their own, their own viewpoint. Um, and I think we're living partly, I think, you know, we, we, that's been amplified by the fact we're now living in a digital world where social media through algorithm, through the way we build our own walls around our, our social media content means that we tend to live in increasingly siloed environments. You know, so for example, on, on a social media platform like Facebook, if you start clicking, showing you're interested in a particular 
political philosophy or a political philosophy around the environment or or any other issue, Facebook feeds you more and more stuff that supports that view, right? And so we're living in a world that is also almost now um, a world of what I call curated ignorance. Social media is almost curating our ignorance for us. Um, and, and I think it, it, it creates a really dangerous environment, particularly for our younger folk, because we're creating ecosystems where, you know, they, 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 a, they find it really, they can't see why they would ever um, look outside their belief system because of the confirmation biases that are constantly circulating and, and fired at them. And then what happens is, of course, when they've got all that like-minded, they've got a like-minded cabal around them, it's very easy for sophisticated manipulators in that cabal to go, to say, anybody who disagrees with you is bad, evil, has your worst interests at heart. And I think that's happened through history, but I think it's even more pronounced and more dangerous now because of the digital space, which preoccupies so much of our lives. Yeah. I agree, Richard. And I think, you know, on that note, you know, as you say, it's always happened, but it's very dangerous now because it's exponential in, in, in the way that it spreads. And, you know, to term a, a phrase, the keyboard warrior, you know, it's controlled by people that you're never actually going to get to confront. You know, in the old days, if somebody upset you, or, you know, or tried to control the world, there was a kind of physical part to it that you could relate to him or her. You could see him or her, albeit on a film or on the TV or here on the radio or whatever. But there was something there. This is dangerous for me, very dangerous, because it's behind the scenes. It's kind of, um, yeah, I want to share... Um, uh, a bit of a, by way of a segue, a bit of a humorous thing. Well, I think it's humorous. There comes that word thought again. I think it's humorous. <laughs> so a few, two or three years ago, a good friend of mine, very good friend of mine, runs a computer shop. So I took my computer. It was, it was kind of slowing up. And he said, I've found some obscene material on your, on your laptop. And I said, you haven't. He said, but I have. I said, well, I've been hacked then. Anyway, he was playing me along and my, my conscience was completely clear. And he kept me hanging and he said, why have you got Nottingham Forest Football Club as one of your favourites? It's obscene because <laughs> he's not a Reg, you see. He's a, he, his, affiliation, his affiliations lie elsewhere. And yeah, I um, imagine just down the A52, judging by his response. You, you, you're very, 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 in fact, you're red hot, Richard. Not so much warm, but red hot. But so anyway, <laughs> you know, we kind of had this banter, but... But kind of joking aside, I think it just goes to, you know, to reinforce and not that it needs any reinforcing how much uh, if we can bring in the term artificial intelligence. AI is starting um, to really, and I say starting to exponentially take over our, our lives and the fear that it's driving in. And, uh, and I'm sure, Richard, like yourself, to hear this phrase, it's going to take over our jobs, unquote, I mean, you know, I'm hearing that more daily than, say, somebody saying, you know, do you want one or two sugars in your tea? And I, you know, I, again, I think, I think it's a really interesting point and perspective on so many levels. Because, again, I think, and I don't use the word ignorance as a criticism. You know, I think, sadly, too often we use the word ignorance as a cheap insult. And it isn't a cheap insult. I think it's a very powerful and provocative word that should be used constructively. You know, one of the things you see, and, and certainly 
you know, we through history, this is true, but it's accelerated because of the rate at which the world is turning and changing now. Our reflex on the whole of anything new has always been to be fearful of it, right? So when Caxton gave the world a mass-produced printing press, the world reacted by saying this will be the end of humanity because now we can print words that will be available to everybody and that's dangerous. Then in the 1950s, you know, transistor radios and uh, the advent of TV and all that kind of stuff gave the world rock music, you know, Elvis Presley and Bill Haley and all of these people, and Buddy Holly and all these people. And <clears throat> everyone said, this will spend, spell the end of humanity as we know it, right? And then we move forward and we've had the early days of computing and then the internet and then, you know, uh, smartphones and then social media and then AI. Uh, now, AI interests me, by the way, because I was talking to a tech expert maybe 12 years ago about AI and his great frustration a nearly a decade and a half ago was, why isn't the world talking about AI now? Because by the time they actually wake up to it, it'll be too late. I mean, just interesting as a sidebar, right? But the point is, all of these things have dark sides. They all have bad, they can be bad actors in the hands of bad actors, right? But they also have incredible potency and power and positivity. And the problem is that as a human species, our reflex of anything new is, and I get it because it goes back, if you like, to the whole thing about fight and flight and the, the reptilian part of our brain and all that kind of stuff, right? Is, oh my God, this is dangerous. I don't understand it. This must be evil. And I need to cast the narrative that way, which goes back to what we were saying before about beliefs, right? Because you can only build your beliefs in what you know, or you think you know, what you understand, what you think you understand, which is based on your experiences, who you talk to, what you see on the internet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, with AI, for example, there's no doubt about the fact that AI will change the world in a way more impactful than social media has, and before that, the internet did, and before that, the printing press did. But it's not all bad. So, for example, I had a conversation um, just last month with a very senior corporate lawyer. And he said, you know, one of the amazing things about AI, he said, let me tell you about most of our jobs in, in this sector as corporate lawyers. He said, most years mean that my team and I have to look through 6,000 major corporate um, contracts, like big tomes right because these things are deeply complicated whether it's a takeover whether it's a you know whatever it is these things are whether it's um, a patent whatever it is these things are massive he said and what's really has always been really challenging as a lawyer is let's say i have to read through six thousand of these things a year each of them has thousands of pages with hundreds of thousands of words he said, on the surface, 98% of those documents are identical. He said, the only difference is in 2%. He said, AI means that in the next few years, 
AI will identify for me the 2% that's different, meaning I don't need to waste my time reading through the entire document to get to the bits that might be contentious or new or different or original or need questioning and challenging. He said, which actually means I will be able to spend more of my intellectual time, more of my professional time focused and targeting on the things that matter. And when I thought about that, I thought, you know, when you talk to people in medical science, they'll tell you the same thing. They'll tell you rather than having to go through really complex processes of diagnosis, multiple testing, you know, retesting to find somebody's pro AI will be able to do the heavy lift bit for us, which means we'll be able to spend more time, less on administrating the process, more on actually finding the solution. And, you know, when when you think about that, yes, it's going to reshape a lot of our lives. But the instinct shouldn't be it's evil. We've got to find a way to combat it. What we need to be doing is broadening our horizons, because, of course, that's the other thing. The more we put ignorance in a box, the more profound our understanding, the more control we take of our lives and the situations around us. And, of course, one of the reflexes for me about that immediate negative kind of reaction to something new, something different, is the fear. And the, so the more you understand, the more you know, the more you control that fear. Because of course, the real danger is when the fear controls you, when you feel that you're out of control, and when you feel you have no power. That's when the anger rises, the negativity rises, the aggression, the locked in, the silo nature, the hunkering down, all of those things. And so for me, going all the way back to the start of our conversation, with education, what I realized was whilst there were a number of issues, even now as, a, as a, an education professional, I realized were not great about my school experience. What I also realized was that I was a vulnerable teenager who felt under threat a huge amount of the time and therefore rejected a lot of what could have been incredibly constructive and positive to me. But I was in a state of heightened alertness, as many teenagers are, you know, the hormones are going bonkers, um, all of the stuff and complexity of what that young part of your life looks like. And actually, if it's taught me nothing else on reflection, it's taught me that the minute I feel nervous or fearful of something, the first thing to do is not to pull away from it, but to try and understand it. Interesting word you mentioned earlier on, Richard, and, and very appropriate in my humble opinion, was the word narrative. And I think the narrative that's playing out around AI generally, but in specific, more specifically with the context of its relationships with AI, emotional intelligence. I think that's a dynamic that for me personally, I find it fascinating. And, you know, the concept of the recycled teenager, um, you know, we'll come to my school experience and I know I've shared this with you privately off air, uh, but I think it's very relevant. And, and I loved it when it came to the fore, Richard, because it reinforced for me, you know, when you talk about fear, Surely that's encompassed within the story we're telling ourselves, our thoughts, our beliefs. We've created this story, this image, this identity. This is who I am. This is my world, etc., um, etc. Et Until we're challenged, as you say. And, you know, for me, 
this, this whole concept of the recycled teenager is amalgamating because we don't want to, and I'm going to use a Gervism here, and I love that, and I use it regularly, um, this childlike curiosity. We don't want to lose that, surely, not to be constrained by fear because we are older now uh, and we know better. Do we? Do we really? Mm, okay, well, that's another podcast altogether. In fact, I'm sure we've already covered that ground comprehensively, Richard. But so to amalgamate this childlike curiosity with senior wisdom, I think you've got a concept called the, the recycled teenager. Because I will go back to my school days and I or my teenage years, and I will go back to when that, you know, that carefree attitude of I'm not going to be constrained by fear. You know, the Brazilian philosophy, and this was certainly in Pelle's when he was coming through the ranks as a young man, give, give me a ball, let me play. And I love that. I love that. And I think we've lost that as a society, as a populace. Richard, we, we've lost it throughout the world. And, and, you know, this is the concept of the intentionality behind the recycled teenager. Let's turn the clock, the hands of time back, because we can. We actually can. All the advancements that you've referred to technologically, they'll stand and they'll grow. But we as people, I just wonder sometimes, and I offer this as a collective, um, not as an individual sort of slur or defamation on any individual at all, including myself, but I just wonder at times, because of this beautiful mechanism up here called a mind, how far have we actually come? Because our friend fear comes and not taps us on the shoulder and say, I'll look after you. Stick with me. I think you're right, you know, and, and just to go again. Yeah, let, let I tell you what people should go back and listen to one or two of our other podcast conversations to to really get the detail of this. But I do think we go through very interesting phases in our lives. Right. So and, and again, we have talked about this before. But, you know, in that first five years of lives, most of our lives, most of us learn the majority of the things we're going to learn in our lifetime, you know, walking, talking, vocal intonation, facial expression, body language. We learn to make sense of the sensory world around us. We acquire every spoken language in our domestic environment. We learn how to manipulate. We know how we learn how to be manipulated. All of those things happen in those first five years. Our learning graph is extraordinary because we have no fear or very little fear, right? We're not scared of making mistakes. Our ego doesn't protect us from looking stupid or being judged, all of those things. Then what happens is our, our physiology, our psychology, the society we move in and, and that shapes us starts to change. And all of those judgment things and, and, and you know, the way we see the world, our awarenesses change, our, our neurology changes. And learning slows down. And then as we head towards our teenage years and the hormones, which we talked about, click in and all of those, you know, we become very, teenagers tend to be very self-centered. They tend to be, you know, all of those things, but also they tend to be incredibly self-aware and very um, vulnerable in their human state and all that stuff. So then what happens is we become really kind of protective of ourselves, of our ego, of the way we see the world. We don't want to do stuff that um, that we shouldn't do. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to do stuff that we feel nervous about, right? And we, we take that pretty much through our working adult lives because the stakes are high. Um, we've got to earn a living. We've got to build relationships. We've got to maintain those relationships personally, professionally, all of that kind of stuff. And then what happens is we enter the third age. 
And in the third age, so many of us, it's at that point, so many of us start to, which is for me where the recycled teenager concept comes from, right? Because in that third age, you start for all kinds of reasons to think like your childhood self again. You suddenly become hungry to learn. You know, how many people who retire suddenly go, oh, I've always wanted to learn to paint or I've always wanted to learn more about science or history or I'm going to go back to study at night school or I'm going to apply for a course at university. or So that, that whole third age begins. And, you know, how often also do you see the joy in some of our elders in our community who go, I don't care anymore. This is how I want to look. This is how I'm going to look. This is how I'm going to be because I don't mind. I've got no one to impress now. You know, you suddenly get to that point in your life when you look in a mirror and you think for the first time in my life, I feel totally happy in my skin as me. And and in a way, <laughs> you're right, because I think the power and potency <clears throat> of what you're talking about, what you're working on with the whole idea of the recycled teenager is if only we could learn the lessons in between the two spikes, childhood, third age, and we could find a way to draw that into what arguably should be the most productive, most dynamic uh, phase of our time, tiny time on this planet. We could actually make the world a better place for ourselves and the people around us. I'm going to offer something, inverted commas, Richard, a solution to bridging that gap. And I'm going to make it very simple because we like simple thinking, don't we? Oh, we do. <laughs> Available at Amazon. Yeah, the plugs are thick and fast, listeners. The plugs are thick and fast. But that one word, Richard, is storytelling. I think that, you know, to, to embrace yet again that childlike curiosity um, and dare, just dare to let our minds be creative again and, and, and the stories we tell ourselves. Because I, I really do believe from my own perception and, and you know some of the kind of experiences that I've been through and, and indeed we've spoke about them on previous podcasts. So they're, they're out there in books and podcasts and, and whatever. So we, you know, we kind of need to keep going down that rabbit hole, of course. But for me, Richard, the one I've learned many things and still many things to learn, but the one thing I'm absolutely convinced of at this you know, this third age of this, this phase that I'm going through now um, is the power of storytelling and how much that can help us in our world to alleviate fear. It is an immensely powerful antidote to fear if we've got that awareness. And, and I'm going to introduce a word and I'm interested in your thoughts around this courage to dare to flirt with this bit of creativity and go into the unknown. I think I think it's a hugely important word. And I think it's one of those things where, again, hopefully the lived experience of wisdom starts to help us, because I think so much fear comes from what we anticipate the outcomes or, 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 or um, the impact of our actions might be or the, the things we may experience or do might be versus the reality of how they actually will be. And pardon me, I think the courage comes from the ability, actually, the self-confidence to say, well, that might be the outcome, but it doesn't have to be the outcome. So I'm going to I'm gonna go for it anyway, right? So, for example, take it to the extreme level. 
somebody who signs up to join the military because they fiercely believe in taking an active role in protecting their nation, their country. And I'm not, I, this isn't about poli a political view of that, right? It's just one of those extreme lines. Those people know full well that by signing up to join, if you like, the infantry, the front line of the military, that they may be killed in action. But they also sign up and the courage comes from but my training, my colleagues, my team, the environment I'm in may well mean that actually I achieve my goal in somehow protecting my country, my nation, my people, my team. And I think sometimes, you know, the problem for so many of us is we have fear without courage. And, and that comes again, it goes all the way back to what we've been talking about, this idea of your own experiences, your own beliefs. And I think courage it, courage for me can be defined by that thing where you go, yeah, it does scare me, but actually it doesn't have to be the outcome. And part of this is about learning what the other outcomes could be and starting the journey because it could end in failure, it could end in disaster, but equally it might not. And, you know, how many people tragically get to the third age in their lives and go, I always wished I'd, oh, I wish I'd gone down that route. Or I'd, oh, if only I'd managed to do X or Y, right? Well, actually, that's the courage thing. And I don't think courage is, is a machismo. I don't think it's a, you know, it's a Schwarzenegger-esque, you know, oh, you've got to be a, you know, a Rambo or a, to, I, I think courage at its smallest, simplest level is the ability to see fear, but just go, but that doesn't have to be the outcome. And I'm going to explore what and how else is possible. Yeah. I mentioned a phrase uh, earlier on, Richard, about turning the hands of time back, which in many respects, in a physical sense, we can't. Or can we? There's another podcast intro. Um, but <laughs> they come thick and fast. Oh boy. Richard, a bit like plugs for your books. Um, <laughs> um, but I think for me, Richard, this whole kind of release, um, just, just picking up on the military thing. So the story we tell ourselves. Now, turning back the hands of time, one thing. But to share with our listeners something that we spoke about a week or so ago off air um, in terms of my own experience. So I went to join the military when I was 19. Okay. I went to join the Royal Marines and I was accepted. And it's interesting that you talk about the love of a woman, because the reason I didn't go in at that moment in time was me and my girlfriend had split up. So I had this notion at the time that, OK, that's OK. So I was, you know, I was uh, all ready to go to Limpston and this and that and the other and what have you. But me and the, the girl had split up. So I had this idea and I'd also got this offer of a, another job, which I took at the post office, the GPO as it was. Then. So I thought, right, what I'll do, I'll take this job short term at the GPO. I'll get back with my girlfriend. And then when we're happily reunited, I'll let the Royal Marines know that I'm available again. <laughs> doesn't work that way. And ironically, talk about life's uh, coincidences, Richard. 
Um, the first guy that they put me with as, as a kind of barely a 19-year-old uh, was an X-42 commando, Royal Marine. And it became very apparent that me and the girlfriend wasn't going to go a uh, big thing. So I was talking to this guy and I was telling him all about it. And he said, so after a, a couple of days of being with him, he'd kind of got to know me a bit. And he said, right, I'm going to take you. I know the recruiting officer down at, in the centre of Nottingham. I'm going to take you back. He said, the Royal Marines is made for you and you're made for them. He said, don't waste. He said, you know, I did sort of nine, ten years in, in the mob. And, you know, I've got a family now, kids, blah, blah, blah. So I need this, he said, but you're, you're a young man finding your way, he said, it'll be brilliant. So he goes back, Richard, down to, uh, to the recruiting office, uh, which was on Milton Street, right in the heart of Nottingham in those days. And this guy, he met up with this, this recruiting, and they were, you know, they were from the, the Royal Navy Stroke Royal Marines. So they knew each other of old, they'd served together. And this guy said to, to the guy that I was working with, the ex-commando, he said, I'm really surprised at you bringing, bringing this guy back. He said, we are the cream of the cream. You only get one chance with us. He didn't even look me in the eye, this guy. It was almost like as if I was not there. He said, and, oh, ironically, Richard, he said the same thing um, as, you know, as, as what uh, the other guy had said. We was made for him and he was made for us, but he's blowing it. Here's the door. Wipe your feet on the way out kind of thing. And, and that was it. So I mentioned that in the context of, and this is a very, very, very recent breakthrough, and I mean recent in the context of two months, of being that recycled teenager and bringing in that wisdom and seeing things in a completely different light after, you know, um, something that happened with a school situation, 48 years on, a guy contacted me out the blue, an old schoolmate from grammar school, which ironically was run along the lines of the military. And I, boy, did I rebel against that in the early 70s. Boy, did I rebel. So there's all this stuff going on. But before that, going back to, you know, when I was kind of 19 and I went to join the Royal Marines, I've come out of this. I've looked at the whole kind of experience now because I cannot turn back the, physically turn back the hands of time. But... What would I do now? What story am I telling myself now? I'll tell you what story I'm telling myself, Richard and listeners. I'm telling my story of, of yes, that was an all-boys grammar school, steeped in tradition, very military-like run. I would have buckled down. I would have got my A-levels. I would have got a commission in the Royal Marines and served as a padre. And I would have represented England at rugby. And as you know, football was my passion for many, many, many years. And I kind of put rugby, because I was actually far better at rugby than I was at football. And I was fairly decent at football. But I, I blew this away with these beliefs, Richard, and being taken down. But now as a recycled teenager, I'm revisiting this. Well, the reality is, Paul, you might say, you're, you're too old to join the Royal Marines uh, and get a commission. And you're too old to represent England at rugby. OK, but if I set out that intentionality, where is that then going to take me? Because there are things, as we know, Richard, that run very, very, very parallel in life. So I might not get that England cap, but who knows? I might get something else. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that is such wise and um, strong reflected advice. And again, it comes down to the wisdom of of, of elders. Right. And, and you know, it. it the, the challenge 
is exactly that. How do you use those stories, that story to help people who aren't yet in that third stage mm. to start to interrogate and question and challenge their, their, you know, their thinking, you know, because the truth is your story, even that story, as you've just alluded to that story, it probably is still in its opening chapter, right? Yeah. But the problem is there are points in our lives where we think, what might be one chapter in the story is the whole book. And I think it's it's that thing about, it goes all the way back to this thing about beliefs and broadening your horizons and constantly having the confidence to overcome fear and, and take new adventures or new pathways and to keep learning, to keep exploring, to keep questioning, to keep challenging. It's, it's all of those, pardon me, it's all of those things. And I think that the, the, the problem is, that we close the book too soon thinking that's the mm. whole story and and you know the truth is until the day they nail us in a box or whatever they do with us once we're our, our physical selves has has been spent we're actually still in the same damn book right we're still in the same we are um we we are a multi-episode multi-chapter um story that the credits will not roll until we're not breathing anymore. Right? Yeah. But here's the other thing about that also, that there is an argument that says how you live your life, even when you're gone, you can continue your story through the legacy you leave and through the others you've influenced and the others you, whose yeah. lives you've touched, right? So... That's the other thing that I, I've always been very cognizant of is how do I in some tiny way leave this world a better place than I found it? Um, you know, because the truth is, and it's a hard truth, within most, of, if, if let's say we live to be in our, blessed to live in our mid seventies to our mid eighties, right? Within one more cycle of that period of time, most of us will be totally forgotten. We might be on a Ancestry.com website, right? There may be somebody who has a photograph of great uncle Paul or grandpa Richard or, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And by the second cycle of that, so within 150 years, no one will even know you existed. And so when you think about that, the short time we're here and the short time we'll be remembered, what that says to me is I have to care intensely about every moment of my life, how I'm living it to the max now and what kind of impact it's having and will have on the world when I've left it. And I think if you start to think that way, you start to be able to counter the fear. Because actually, when you think about it, the fear you may have woken up with this morning is not something that you'll remember, hopefully in 10 years time, but you may look back on and think, my God, I wish I'd taken a stride forward. And in 150 years time, nobody will know you even existed, let alone that morning you woke up with that moment of fear. Yeah. So it's contextualizing yeah. constantly for me about saying, 
you know, we've got to we've got to find a way. We've got to find a way to live the moment, to suck in wisdom, to take advice, to look at the pathways and not close them off by the limitation of our beliefs or the context of our experiences. And actually, I want to know the, the day before I draw my final breath, I exhausted every pathway and opportunity. Mm. Just listening to that, Richard, I tell you what's come to me, rightly or wrongly, maybe the recycled teenager actually is the recycled storyteller. Because he or she, they're, recy they're constantly recycling and processing in that moment, in that moment, in that moment. And what is that story? You know, I, I know that upon reflection, I know just from my own perspective that my views, maybe not radically, everything that we've spoken about, Richard, will have been challenged, enhanced, augmented, call it what you will as a result of just this one conversation alone. And, and arguably our conversations are, dare I say, extremely powerful because we just dive in and we go all over the place. And, and I'm not saying I don't have those conversations with others, of course I do. But there's a certain richness and there's a certain synergy I feel in, in our dance. And that's actually, and, and you're absolutely right what you said about, you know, the beginning of the chapter. Maybe that chapter of that recycled teenager is growing into another chapter where that actual teenager goes into the phase two. And then that teenager then goes in from two to three in, you know, the kind of more senior age. And it, he or she becomes the recycled senior or the recycled storyteller. I love Just that. A thought. And you've done it before our very ears and eyes. And by the way, the other thing is the ability to... You know, when somebody writes a book and draws a character, they might, for example, say, Paul was a complex boy. Uh, he had a temper on him and uh, he found it very hard to accept the views of others, right? Which was your self-talk because you were authoring your story when you yeah. were 14, 15, 16 years of age. Yeah. Now, with the perception of wisdom, the recycled storyteller would be able to go back to chapter one and go... Perhaps Paul wasn't just an angry boy. Perhaps mm. Paul was this or could have been that. And it's the bit because one of the things that defines the way we feel about ourselves is the perception we have of ourselves. Right. And also we think we can't rewrite history. And I suppose it's not about rewriting history. It's about reconsidering and understanding the different connotations of our lived history. And I think it's that ability that is is where the recycling comes from. You know, you can't change the actions you took when you were 14, but you can change the way you felt about them, feel about them and might feel about them moving forwards. So going back to what you were saying about, you know, joining the Marines, um, mm. playing rugby for England, becoming a padre. Right. The, the, the pull you were in chapter one stopped those things happening. but. The pull you now understand who was in chapter one can reframe the actions you take as pull now because you've changed the perception of your own lived history and personality. And that turns that book from being a dead document into a living document. And ultimately, that's it, right? Our stories need to be living documents. Just because you've made the mark on the page when you were 15 or 16 doesn't mean that 
mark on that page has to live to the final moment of the final chapter of your book. Mm. And taking that even, st stretching that even further, Richard, maybe, just maybe, actually, it's not even about one book. Maybe it's time for us as individuals and collectively to start building whole new libraries, which takes us right back to that example you gave at the beginning, the top of this beautiful conversation around, you know, when a senior uh, person dies, a library burns down. Yeah, burns down. And that really speaks to that, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It does. Absolutely. It does. Um, mm. I think you're absolutely right. There's a kind of poet, a poetic arc. There's a story to the conversation we've just had, I think. Yeah, that's unusual, Richard, for when you and I to get together for a story to emerge. <laughs> that must be a first, not. <laughs> Final words, Richard. I mean, it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation, you know, as it always is, I believe, I feel. Um, any final thoughts, any concluding remarks, anything at all, really? I think for me, what's really stood out, Paul, is the growth we take and the growth you so eloquently talk about in your own life. And, and that growth has come from the confidence to reflect objectively, to allow other viewpoints and lived experiences to not just impact on your life, because that sounds almost too reactive, but to mm. embrace those viewpoints and contexts and the courage, which is the word you, you used, to then start to reframe some of that history, those chapters, that lived experience, which has allowed you to pick up the pen and actually frame a new ending from the ending you've always anticipated. And the courage to know that even the ending you might think you're writing for yourself now could still be altered and changed down, down the line. So I think for me, it's openness. It's the ability to challenge your beliefs and your lived experiences and never allow yourself to put the full stop on any part of your life, knowing you can always turn it into a comma and add to it. Mm. So my final question, and it's, it's in many respects, Richard, it's a kind of one word answer, if I may. So, Paul Lowe, the recycled teenager or the recycled storyteller? Which one, Richard? See, no pressure. <laughs> yeah, I know. I still like the recycled teenager. And I think what you do is you 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 explain in that narrative that actually it's about a storytelling and the stories you tell. But I actually really love that idea because in many ways, many of us believe our entire life history. And I know this isn't a one word answer. Our, our all Many of us believe our entire life history is defined by the decisions we make around our later teenage years. And I mm. think a recent the recycled teenager is a very powerful message of hope. Mm. Wow. And on that hopeful note, listeners, we'll draw it to a close. Thank you once again, Richard. And uh, until next time, I'm going to sign off the way I always do by saying, remember, the world's changing. How will you respond? Thanks very much for listening to this World Game Changers podcast episode. Hopefully you found it interesting and helpful. Drop a line to paul at worldgamechangers.org with any thoughts or questions you may have, and he'll be more than happy to respond. Remember, the world's changing. How will you respond? <laughs>